Sit back and relax. Educate and inform. Cozy conversations, drop the knowledge that's for real. Indigo Studio, always in the know. With Hermine Hartman, you'll be enlightened. This is Hermine Hartman with A Cozy Conversation, Bendigo Studio. And today, my guest is Tracy Bain. She is a publisher, alternative newspaper publisher. Tracy, there is a, uh, I, want, I want to talk to you about media. I want to talk about media at large. I want to talk about your career, things you've done, what progressions you've seen. But there's a rumor going around saying that you are retiring. <laughs> And I, I want you to address that rumor. <laughs> I am not retiring, but I did give notice to the Chicago Reader um, Board of Directors to start search for my replacement, but I am not retiring. I still need health insurance, and uh, I still have a lot of writing I want to do. But the last four years I've been, um, as publisher at the Reader, have been a very heavy lift. And during COVID, during fights and all sorts of things, I think it's time for fresh leadership. Um, we're getting ready to announce a new editor-in-chief next week, and the publisher search is going to start next week as well. Wow. So you intend to do what? As I want to work the reader, evolve from the reader. You intend to do what? <laughs> I am definitely evolving like Serena. Um, I still want to work in the journalism ecosystem in some way. Um, I'm especially trying to advocate for more resources to come into community media. And I think we've been successful at pushing things like more equity and marketing dollars from the city of Chicago. I hope there'll be an announcement this fall on that. Um, a pooled fund for journalism um, that would put more resources into community media, regardless of for-profit or nonprofit. So I want to do the advocacy side, and I definitely want to get back to writing, which is what I love the most and I miss the most. Having taken over the reader, I haven't been able to write really in four years because I've been raising money and tap dancing for dollars. Been doing the administration part yep. of it. Yeah. Yep. I do both. Yeah. So I can't give up my writing. Yeah. I just, I just can't do it. You are. You were the creator. Your first publication was Windy City, Windy City News. Right. When I graduated college, I started at Gay Life Newspaper in 1984. And in 1985, I co-founded Windy City Times with a group of people. And it was a long-lasting, and still is today, uh, a Chicago LGBT news site. We don't do as much in print anymore. We do four quarterly prints and uh, coinciding with the reader. But then it's mostly online. And it's really, at this point, my labor of love. Um, it's not paying the bills. So I will definitely be looking for other work once I leave the reader. So you and I started about the same time, and for, but for the same reason, yeah. is that you saw kind of gay being missed i saw black being totally missed yep uh did not like the uh the viewpoints that were being expressed and so we started our own newspapers right the mainstream media really to this day but especially back in the 80s and before that stereotyped communities really badly and they parachuted in for stories um most of their reporters didn't live in the areas they were covering um in terms of the gay community they just equated them all with pedophiles. When HIV AIDS came along, they stereotyped that, ignored it. And when they did cover, it was mostly out of ignorance. So for us, you know, community media, whether that's black, Latino, Asian, gay, whatever it might be, we, we really still today, I think, serve a very important role. Now the mainstream's a little better, but they're also depleted in their ranks. So there was this great glory days of the 90s and early 2000s where they had beat reporters. They were doing a lot more on communities. But now 
they have to focus on the really big stories, which means community falls and by the wayside. And global stories. And global stories, You see yeah. more, I call it corporate, uh, I think John Cass calls it corporate news. Yeah. We see more of that. Right. I read four newspapers every single day before I walk out the house. Huh. So what I'm finding now is I read the New York Times daily, mm-hmm. Tribune daily, Sun-Times daily, and Wall Street Journal. I read something in the New York Times today, and then tomorrow I'm reading it in the Tribune to the point where I've said to myself sometimes, wait a minute, I just read that. Where did I read that? And then, you know, I read it the day before. So you're seeing more um, wire service. Right. Associated Press really fills a lot of uh, local media. Right. A lot Mm -hmm. of space. Talk about alternative newspapers what are you call yourself alternative and i called indigo an alternative newspaper what's what's an alternative newspaper you know that's interesting question because when the reader started in 1971 alternative at that point meant four white guys who started the paper were trying to have a different view than the mainstream white corporate owned media Mm -hmm. than the tribune and sometimes in daily news and such um that's evolved over time i think um alternative really is the new mainstream to me. Like alternative media is where you're going to be really local and those local stories, whether it's the Flint, Michigan water crisis or the environmental racism of Chicago uh, Latino neighborhoods having explosions happen and poison their neighborhoods. Or violence and crime. And violence and crime. It bubbles up from local community newspapers into the mainstream. So alternative meant something, I think, in the day. And now because of the egalitarian nature of the Internet, and anybody can really start uh, a newspaper, so to speak, um, much cheaper to do it than when we started. Oh, my goodness. So that means that really everything's alternative in some way. And then you have the corporate media that fills this. This They're kind of the alternative to me. They become the alternative. They, so we've, exactly. been, we've been in this long enough to see the mainstream <laughs> become the alternative and the alternative become the main. Yeah, I really do believe that. That's because even Twitter and, and social media, those are different kind of channels to communicate mm-hmm. that never existed before. Talk about life as a publisher. You know, it's uh, it's one of those things where you hate to complain because it is in a wonderful um, place to be. And I had to become my own publisher to do this work. And I only really ever took the title because somebody needed to, uh, right? Me too. As women, I think it, w- it might be it was harder to claim the title. And in fact, when I first started another paper called Outlines, I didn't even have a publisher on it. I was the top name, but I, I said I was managing editor. And eventually I said, well, I guess I am the publisher. I'm raising the money. I'm selling the ads. I'm making sure the bills get paid. Paper gets out. Um, so it took me a while to understand and, and as, as a 20-something that. And as now as 50-something going on 60, um, I feel like it's a great honor to be in that role. But there are definitely sacrifices you make, especially in alternative media financially and family-wise and everything else. I don't regret for a minute any of those sacrifices, but it is a unique personality it's it's entrepreneurial it's journalism it's all these things rolled into one which means not a day in our life are we bored but also not a day in a life do we feel rested um i'm trying to move into a different phase so that i can get back to the writing that it first inspired me to go into journalism when i was 10 years old um i don't know if you know this but my very first uh writing that i i didn't get paid for it but that i did was at the chicago defender and Is at, that right? At ten years old in 1973, oh, I had when a, they had the uh, the student, the children's. It uh, wasn't even that. My mother was managing editor at the Chicago Defender. Is that right? Yeah, I was a white woman. Uh, Miss Joe, Joe Joy Darrow was her name. 
she died about 25 years ago, but she was managing editor. So I did a little kids consumer column for, for a few issues at the Chicago Defender. I recently found them in the archives. But my mother had worked, she had been at the Chicago Tribune, and then she was forced out when she tried to cover hard news. So she kind of bounced around, and she worked for Dempsey Travis at the United Mortgage Brokers of America, which was the black mortgage brokers group fighting redlining. So my mom had gone to national conferences, worked really closely with Dempsey on his autobiography of Black Chicago, the book, and he knew Sengstack, John Sengstack at the Defender. So my mom um, worked there for about a decade, um, and part of that time was managing editor, and she also freelanced. There was actually a section named after her called Joy. And so I, I got to go down to the printing plant when she was laying out the paper. Every part of journalism excited me, including the layout of the newspaper, the typesetting. And you went to the press. And I went to the press in Cal City, I think it was. And uh, I would we'd sit there and do paste up sometimes. I mean, I just loved it. I loved everything about fonts and typesetting machines at the Don't point. Don't you miss it? I miss that part mm-hmm. of it. I miss the physical part of producing a paper. Mm-hmm. But I also think it informs me greatly in thinking about it now to have appreciated the stages of media before it became digital. Mm-hmm. It really resonates for me differently. Like it, it sticks in my mind in a different way than I think the more ephemeral way that media is translated these days. So you were trained. I was trained. You were really, you even were at really Lane Tech High School, we learned those old types. I learned the really hot lead machines. Mm-hmm. Then I learned the computer graphic machines. See, I wasn't trained. I was trained. I'm a sociologist. I'm a psychologist. <laughs> by tra- I'm a behavioral scientist wow. by training. And at the, I was at city colleges and went into uh, became in when I went into administration, I was I had external affairs, external affairs, meaning communications yeah. and a uh, bright idea. We had eight colleges and I had a bright idea is one college doesn't know what the other college is doing. This college is having a play. This college is having a speaker. This college is doing this. And we didn't communicate with wow. each other. Wow. And so I said, I think we need a newspaper. And the chancellor says, well, then let's do a newspaper. And that is how I, that was my initiation is I kind of got into it by doing uh, a newspaper for the colleges. But then as I was looking to buy advertising for the student I was looking for, it's like, I can't find the right spot. I can't find the right, uh, the right thing to advertise in. And so that is where the genesis for me came that's, that's for fantastic out of a need right? out of a need yeah. and out of an absence of what mainstream simply was ignoring and not uh and not doing talk about life as a publisher well on a day-to-day basis um the pressure is to make sure the trains are all running on time mm-hmm. and that the conductors are paid right so that the editors and the business people are all paid and I think when the thing that happened when I took over at the Reader, that was really a step up for me. I had been basically Windy City Times for decades, doing my own thing in this small pond, and all of a sudden I'm in a lake, right? And it's losing a million dollars a year. It had lost a lot of its reputation, and it was embedded in the Chicago Sun Times. So what they asked me to basically do is turn around the trains, you know, make some new tracks. And about a year in, I realized it needed more revenue opportunities, and one of those was nonprofit. But you've got to think now. You were you when you came in, there was a decline in print media. Right. It wasn't the reader bad. It was the industry it, it, going retrograde. Yeah. It was both, right? Mm-hmm. Like we knew the reader was embedded in a larger animal that had its own survival needs. 
And so when we inherited it, we didn't get any advertising lists or sales reps or anything. So we first stepped up the upper, you know, the to meet with all the original advertisers that had been really long time, like Jam Productions, Old Town School of Folk Music, to rebuild those bridges. But yes, then we had to create new revenue streams. And one of those was working on a process of creating a nonprofit, memberships, all sorts of other types of revenue to keep the reader going. Under COVID, we tap dance for dollars like crazy. We created a coloring book and cookbook and all sorts of other products. And as it moves into its next phase and rebuilds entirely really as a nonprofit, it still needs to have the advertising core. That's so still you're two-thirds. still printing a newspaper as well as online. Yeah, we print 60,000 copies every two weeks. We're going to stay bi-weekly. It went bi-weekly during COVID, and it's a great cycle for our team, both editorial and business, because we're really growing stronger on on digital and social media. So we're going to keep in print because I feel like print is such a, an egalitarian way to communicate information as there is less and less print out there. There are people that print is, and especially because we're free in 1,200 locations across the city, it creates a, a low entry level for people to get information if they don't have a smartphone or access to computers um, or, you know, all sorts of things. So it's older and younger. Uh, in many ways, the younger people see it almost like an album versus digital music. It's, it's, it's kind of like they see a typewriter. Right. And it's for some people, this is new. Like, oh, really? Is it? How do you use this? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, really? So there is a specialness to it. And we've run out. Some of our boxes run out in eight hours. And that's a problem because we're out for two weeks. So it's, I think there's always going to, not always, I can't say five years from now, but for now, print is really a critical part of what we do and how we reach people in a free way. Good. This is Hermine Hartman having a cozy conversation today with Tracy Bain. We're talking about publishing and media. And uh, thank you for listening. Tracy, what do you see, what do you foresee for media in, say, five years from now? Well, I think it will continue to evolve. I'm hopeful that some of the traditional legacy media publications that are as long as 1800s, like the Hyde Park Herald, which recently moved with merged with Southside Weekly to become a nonprofit, will sustain, right? My goal and I will continue to do this uh, even though I'm leaving the reader, is to make sure that small community media still thrive. And and what definition of thrive is probably different for every one of them. Some are two-person shops, some are 20 shops. Um, I think organizations like City Bureau, Block Club, The Tribe, um, Indigo, The Reader will adapt, right? I think all of us have really been seen to adjust under COVID. Those who survived COVID, Mm -hmm. I think, will really be adjusting. The vast majority will be distributed through online. There's no doubt that digital will continue to grow, but I am hopeful that other means of communication will continue. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this commercial break and this wonderful message from BMO. Small businesses are the pillars of our communities and they deserve our support. The BMO for Black and Latinx Businesses program provides that support by giving you better access to educational resources, partnerships, and funding. BMO has already made an impact by providing financing to more than 1,200 businesses throughout the Midwest. Business owners who are part of the program benefit from a wide range of tools, webinars, and coaching to help you focus on what you do best, and that's growing your business. Meaningful partner connections give you access to professional networks and alternative funding resources to help your business scale. And funding for your business comes with expanded credit 
criteria, and competitive interest rates to help you obtain the working capital that you need to succeed. If you identify as a business or Latinx business owner, BMO Harris is here to help your business thrive and create capacity to grow. Learn more at bmoharris.com slash black and Latinx. When a bank helps you make real financial progress, well, that's the BMO effect. We're talking to Tracy Bain today about publishing, about media. Tracy, how have you seen inclusion, diversity, and equity come about in media? I think we have a long way to go. Part of that is a lot of the traditional access points to get into media are a very high bar. And that, what I mean by that is journalism school. Journalism school really became a popular way to become a journalist after Watergate in the 1970s. Both my parents who got into journalism went, you know, my they didn't necessarily have a traditional path. And it was not unusual for people to come from political science or writing or what other academia, uh, academia, you know, sociology, et cetera. And, and then it became much more about these journalism schools, which are very expensive um, and the industry doesn't necessarily support the wages that can pay back those student loans. And so I think the equity part starts by having an inequitable access into journalism schools. Do you think the schools are teaching what's needed in the real world for journalism? I, I do think the journalism schools are getting better and more nimble as they get newer professors in there. A lot of them have had some professors for 20, 35 years and they don't know what the current state of journalism is so i do think there needs to be continued adaptation getting younger journalists in say what it's like today what it's like to be an entrepreneurial journalist community media so i i think they're getting better and we get a lot of great students out of the local journalism schools like depaul columbia medill so i would say they're doing better than a, a decade ago on that but always can do better but They've i really think got new teachers because a lot of the reporters who no longer have jobs at mainstream right. have gone into teaching. Right. right. So they have a earlier, they're, they're closer to the ties of the real world than sometimes those legacy 35, 40 year teachers used to be. So I do think it's getting better, but it's the cost of journalism school as well as to me, four years for journalism education, maybe two years you could do like community college and then two years of real world experience mm-hmm. um, and paid internships, um, more of paid internships. I think you're going to get a more realistic network and, and jobs. So we do need to continue to work on that. Um, I also think that the traditional path of, Oh, I want to go work for the New York times is, is over. It always was unrealistic for 99% of us. Right. But it was always this aspiration that people might've had. And I don't think that should be, I think some people will do better in doing their own thing or working in community media. Um, Tiffany and, um, at the tribe is a good example of an editor, you know, that did do Northwestern. Um, and that's a great spot where they're at right now. Right. Like, and so I don't think you have to, I think there's a symbiotic relationship and a, a crossover relationship between community media and mainstream media that didn't used to exist. First of all, there's more respect, I hope, between the two, and people go back and forth more likely. It used to be a one-way street. You go community media, and then you want to go to the mainstream. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think a lot of people in the mainstream like the freedom of working in community media if they could just afford it. Well, everybody's become a journalist, too. I mean, I've got a Facebook page, and I've got 10,000 people. I've got a blog, and yeah. I've got this, and I've got a YouTube, and I've got that, and I've got a podcast, and I've got that. So everybody is a journalist. Yeah. Now. I would love to see Journalism 101 taught in high school and then also in college. I think 
because you, of what, what you just you, said. What would you teach? Well, I think the very basics of reputation, libel, slander, what is what is journalism? Like, I think if you ask 100 people, you get 100 different definitions. And, and so there are people, I would consider journalists, but citizen journalists, in social media sphere that could benefit from just even understanding the basics of research and fact-checking and and how you validate information online because Wikipedia is not the only thing out there, right? And and that gets hacked a lot. But the the other part of it is because of some of the Facebook Live that we've done, we've got stories, uh, the, the George Floyd perfect example, that we wouldn't have otherwise. If they were waiting for the news cameras to come, right. that story would not probably have happened. No, I totally agree. Um, it's as if we, this country believes uh, police abuse only happens in front of cameras. It doesn't. We know 99% does not. And deny it or right. you were threatening Or they turn off their cameras. Had, <laughs> right. And you turned off the cameras yeah. therefore. But with Facebook Live, it's like, no, here's what happened. Yeah. Here it is. Yeah. So I love, I love this aspect of the new world, the citizen journalism. I think what we just need is more parameters to, to not uh, filter it, but to be able to curate and support citizen journalists with the basic information they need to be, be do their jobs better and to resource them. So having all this access is great. Um, there's almost too much, um, and that means you get the bad facts, right? But you have mainstream media that are perpetrating bad facts on, on Fox News and others. Also. So, so it's not like citizen journalists are the only ones, and some of them do some of the most honest reporting there is because it's raw, unfiltered it's by raw. an editor. It's unfil- unfiltered, keyword. Mm-hmm. This is Hermine Hartman having a cozy conversation today with Tracy Bain. We're talking about media and publishing and our changing world and the future of media. Tracy, what do you see? One of the things that I tell people all the time is we are information sources. We get information from everywhere and it it comes in night and day. What do you see as the main three problems of Chicago today? In the journalism space or just generally? Generally. I think perception, um, because I think we have a perception that crime is a dominant thing, but it's different for every neighborhood. And um, it gets sensationalized, certainly by candidates for governor that are sensationalizing it. And and so I think um, we need more storytelling about the real lives of people in neighborhoods so that it's not distorted by the worst time in their life, but that we also see them. And I see this in community media. We see them at the best, the medium and the worst times of their lives when you when you have more stories. Right. If you have more information, you can make better decisions about this city. So crime is one. Crime is one. I think the disparity of of uh, TIFs, I think TIFs have really created a bifurcated city where you have so much resources going into certain neighborhoods and we are really uh, killing neighborhoods almost in, a, in an intentional way, as specifically to push out the black community. Um, so I think that the, the lack of a, an egalitarian tax system and resources throughout the city is what's leading to crime. All of these are systemic issues. You cannot solve crime if you don't solve the inequities. Um, and I do think the education system is one of is another one. Um, and again, they're all tied in together. Uh, the closing of all those schools without a, an answer to the education problem, maybe those schools should have been shut. Who knows? It was done so quickly that really there wasn't an analysis to say, where are they going to go now? And then You're you have about the schools that Mayor Rahm, Rahm Emanuel yeah. closed 50 of them in one swoop. One swoop and it without, was historical. No one's ever done that before. Right. With no solution beyond 
that, right? That there wasn't an alternative then. The solution was they have to stay with the Board of Education for five years. Now we're seeing those schools turned into condominiums and... And private schools. And private schools and so forth. Yeah, so privatization of our public resources is is certainly a problem. We're paying private schools to do, to teach our kids with our tax dollars. So I think there's, the problem is naming three things is difficult because this, it's the system that has always been inequitable and it's not getting better. Systemic. What do you think about racism, sexism, and gayism? What do you think about the isms? Are we are the isms lightening up? Are they lo- are we losing them? Are they improved? Are they better? Are they worse? What I, about the isms? I think way? that there is a great progress that has been made if you look back 50 years on any of those issues, right? Women have can get credit cards and loans, no, but right? We can't, but we can't get abortions. We can't get abortions, right? So I think there's been great progress, but I I worry immensely that progress is resting on a Supreme Court that has now been stolen um, and is so corrupt and has created a corrupt election system and the gerrymandering in the majority of the states by Republicans is going to create an absolute nightmare in the House. So in many ways, all the rights and the progress we made since the early 60s with voting rights and everything, even Loving v. Virginia, right, are on the line because they they could easily be taken away. Um, and certainly abortion rights are a, a privacy issue that a lot of other rights rested on. And you can see that in the Supreme Court decision that they're saying, well, maybe there isn't a right to privacy, which means maybe there's not a right to birth control. Maybe there's not a right to marriage equality. So that is the problem that a lot of these rights are con- interconnected and could come tumbling down uh, into the Supreme Court. They're threatened. Yep, absolutely. We see, we see them threatened. Why this is something that I think about a lot. You know, they ask you what wakes you up at night. Uh, And this is one of the things that's beginning to wake me up at night. Young people don't vote. The last election we had here in Chicago, only 10,000 people, 25, uh, under voted. And the trend is the older you are, the more likely you are to vote. The younger you are, the less likely you are to vote. Why do you think young people are not voting? You know, I, I it's a million-dollar question, probably a billion-dollar question. Um, I I tend to think, even in, in when I was growing up, that in the mass, vast majority of my peers were not voting, and I was, that it's it's the engagement, and the number doesn't necessarily matter as much as the engagement and the, and the education of those voters. So if a bunch of people that have no idea who to vote for just showed up to vote, it wouldn't necessarily solve the problem. Um, and if we don't have candidates that inspire and compromise themselves into being wishy-washy, and, and I think there's some really exciting young Democratic candidates, people like Beto and Stacey and Georgia, they will inspire people to turn out, right? And we've often had a lot of really milk toast candidates that it's like, uh. So you, you know, think it's all about the candidate? I do think that candidates inspire. The Republicans show that um, in terms of getting someone to turn out to vote. But it isn't just that, right? They also have to be, they have to have a spine, right? And they have to do what they say they said they were going to do what about the role of the media oh the media is so amorphous like to me the mainstream media even places like cnn they take a talking heads approach to the news which makes it not news it's a bunch of chattering class people that often what what about the commercials i mean we've seen in in illinois we've seen the last two uh gubernatorial uh governors who won spend millions of dollars 
uh-huh. in putting commercials on TV. We just saw, on one hand, and they won. Uh-huh. We just saw also a gubernatorial candidate with $20 million who lost because right. of his messaging. Those were media campaigns. Right. What do you What do you think about that? I mean, and, and then we have social media. There's, uh, I talked to some of the candidates, and they were, oh, we're just doing social media. And I said, it's a mistake. You've got to do traditional media. Right. On the other hand, I had some to say, well, we're doing traditional media, and we're not going to worry about social media. And I'm saying it's not either or right. anymore. It's both and, and you've got to be selective, but you've got to be intentional with both. What role do people like you and I, what role do we play to endorse, not to endorse, to talk to all the candidates or some of the candidates? How do you how do you interpret that? Well, we don't endorse. Uh, now we're nonprofit. We can't endorse, but we didn't before as well. To me, it's to educate. So it's to survey, interview, deal with compromise, um, deal with all of the candidates as best as possible. We're going to have an absolute nightmare election to cover in February um, there's probably going to be hundreds of candidates. So the media has to do its best to focus on the most important races, aldermanic and mayoral, and, and just educate. So we're in Chicago, and we're talking about the upcoming mayoral uh, campaign, whereas to date, how many candidates At least 15 we aldermen. We've got 15 right now who are going to— They're not going to run again, which not means— Not going to yeah. run again, but for our mayoral campaign, we've got—what, we've got about 10? I think at we've least. We've got about 10 candidates <laughs> who are running, holding, and waiting for more— to join the race. How do we cover? I only can, you can only survey on the issues and, and just write as much as possible to educate people about the positions. Endorsing is for some. I don't, I do think it's important, but now, I not endorse. for everyone. Yeah. And I endorse because for the black community, I think we get lost yeah. in the process yeah. if we don't endorse. So yeah. I, I I take it as a, as a right. It's like yeah. I should endorse. And then I get phone calls to say, Miss Harvin, who should we vote for? Yeah. And so I, I'm still endorsing. Yep. Yeah. At Whitney City Times, we survey the candidates and then we put the results of the survey. And if they get 90 percent of the questions in line with the gay movement, then that's what they get. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a cozy conversation and an interesting conversation on media. And Tracy Bain has a rumor out that she's retiring. I'm not going to let her go. We didn't give her permission. So we're, we're going to insist that she still stay with us as an advocate and uh, as a publisher. And I think maybe you should teach publishing. That's an idea for you. Um, Hermine Hartman with a cozy conversation. And I thank you for listening. With Hermine Hartman, you'll be enlightened. Up and up we grow.